This is Motley Fool Answers. I'm Allison Southwick, and I'm joined, as always, by Robert Brokamp, personal finance expert here at The Motley Fool. He's also the advisor on Motley Fool's Rule Your Retirement newsletter. Hi, bro. Hello, Allison. We have someone sitting to the right of you today, and his name is Matt Trogdon, and he is... What would you say it is you do here, Matt? <laughs> That's a great question, Allison. I am the head of marketing for our mutual fund subsidiary, Motley Fool Asset Management, a sister company of the Motley Fool. Company of the I, Motley know, Fool. I know you like to say that. I do. I don't like to. I have to. Uh, but you are not here to talk about marketing. You are here because you are actually an avid history buff, in fact, a history major. And so you are here today because it's election day. And regardless of who you voted for, there is plenty of room under the big tent of Motley Fooldom in the pursuit of personal fiscal responsibility. I'll vote for that. Yeah, so today we're going to talk about elections past and whether or not presidents impacted the markets the way political pundits assumed they would. Also, I think we can all agree, this has been a harrowing election, and as it comes to a close, we could all use a trip to Disney World. All that and more on this week's episode of Motley Fool Answers. It's time for Answers, Answers, and today's question comes from Jeremy in Washington, D.C., just down the road. Hi, Jeremy. Jeremy writes, I have a question about Roth IRAs and income limits. I understand that at certain income levels, you are no longer allowed to contribute to a Roth IRA. How does this work exactly? Is it based on your previous year's income? What happens if I contribute to a Roth IRA at the start of the new year before I've calculated my taxes and find out later that I'm over the income limit? Will the IRS come and steal my dog? (laughs) Thanks for the clarification you can give. Well, Jeremy, your dog is safe. That's the good news. Uh, Your contributions are based on how much you make in the year that you make the contribution. So that is a little complicated because there are income limits um, based on your relative your eligibility for the Roth IRA. Remember, if you have the option of a Roth 401k at work, there is no income limit. You can always contribute that. But for the Roth IRA, here are the limits for 2016. So if you're single, it is your modified adjusted gross income. And I'll get to that in a second. Under, can't wait. You can't wait. <laughs> so below $117,000. And then it gradually reduces your eligibility up to the point of $132,000. So what that means is the contribution limit for 2016, and it's going to stay the same in 2017, by the way, is $5,500, $6,500 if you're 50 or older. So let's say you're 30 years old, you make under $117,000, you're single, you can do the whole $5,500. Once you start creeping over that $117,000, that $5,500 limit starts creeping down until you get to $132,000, and then that's it. You can't contribute anything. If you're married, those limits, that range is $184,000 to $194,000. So what is modified adjusted gross income? Well, it's your adjusted gross income, which is all the money you made in a certain year minus certain deductions, like the amount that you contributed to deductible IRAs or your 401k. It's at the bottom of the front page of the standard 1040 form. And then you take that, and then you have to add back a few things to get to your modified adjusted gross income. I'm not going to go into all of that, because uh, even in the worksheet on uh, Form 590, or <laughs> Publication 590, which explains all this... My favorite your form. Your favorite one. It's like a 13-step worksheet to figure out your modified adjusted gross oh. income. So, just know that if you're, if you're pretty far away from those limits, you're okay. If you get close, then you do have to figure it out. So, what happens if you contribute to your Roth IRA for a year and then it turns out you earn too much, you should call the financial services provider that is manager that has your IRA and ask them about your options. It'll come down to a couple of things. First of all, you can just get the money back um, or you can have it recharacterized as a traditional IRA. 
anyone can contribute to a traditional IRA as long as you have earned income. Whether it's deductible or not is another question. But if you contribute the $5,500, find out you weren't eligible for Roth, you can just have it recharacterized as a traditional IRA. Even if you don't get the deduction, it'll grow tax-deferred, which is still a nice thing. But the dog is safe. But the dog is safe, right? I was going to say, I actually had a similar issue yesterday, a similar question. Someone took your dog? No, I just moved from Virginia into D.C., and so I was filling out my new tax forms, and there is the deduction worksheet where you have to calculate, if you're going to itemize, and I always itemize, if you're going to calculate you know, what you think your itemized deduction is going to be, and it was just, I just... My eyes glazed over. It's very difficult to yeah. do. Like if you want to like factor in how much you should have withheld from your paycheck, it can be pretty yeah. tricky. Even the IRS form for that is a little difficult. The one thing about the the IRA versus a four hundred one k with your IRA, remember you have till the tax filing deadline of the following year to contribute. So oh, if you're okay. thinking of making a contribution for two thousand sixteen. You can wait until you're about to do your taxes, figure out your modified adjusted gross income, and then make that contribution. Which, by the way, for 2017, the tax filing day- deadline is April 18th. Because Circle April, your calendars. April 15th falls on a weekend, so you got a few extra days. So that's another way to do that. Just wait until you absolutely know what your modified adjusted gross income is, and then make the decision. the election, there was no end to the stories about what would happen in the markets and where you should invest if Trump versus Clinton wins the White House. The Fool is actually as guilty of this as any other website I'm embarrassed <laughs> to say. <laughs> I saw an article the other day and I was like, oh man, we do it. On. We do it too. It's a good headline. It is. That's, that's Yeah, well, we'll get into headline. that. Yeah, so. if, if you people didn't like it, you wouldn't read it. So that's all I'm saying. So it's on you. <laughs> that's right. It's your fault. For taking us into the muck. Uh, okay, so joining us today in studio is Matt Trogdon. He's here to talk about the history of presidential predictions. And thanks for joining us today. Sure, thank you for having me. You're here, like I said at the top of the show, because you are a bit of a history buff. Yeah, you could say that. Weren't you in the process of getting like a PhD in history, and then you woke up and realized maybe not? Yeah, that's that's how it happened. That's, yeah, I uh, I majored in history. I graduated with a bachelor's in history, and I thought I wanted to be a history professor. Oh, so I went to grad school and started a uh, master's and PhD track. And probably by the time I came home for Thanksgiving that first semester, I was pretty sure I wasn't going to be a history professor. It was just uh, I'll tell you, man, grad school in the humanities is just lonely. <laughs> It's just lonely living, <laughs> and it's just you and the books and the research. And I like to talk way too much to uh, to do that. So I got I stuck around for two years. I got my master's, and um, yeah. So, but and I still I still love it. I still uh, read history. I still listen to history podcasts. I you know still watch history stuff on TV. Uh, if I ever want to be alone, and you know have my girlfriend in the other room, I'll just throw on a Ken Burns documentary and we're good to go. <laughs> Everyone scatters. Yep. And Matt, what was your first job here at The Motley Fool? My first job, I was the product manager for Motley Fool Rule Your Tire. Oh, yeah. I didn't know that. It's true. That's we right. were buds back then. We were. 
Yeah. Although you were an intern before. I was. Yes. I was an intern. I came uh, straight out of graduate school That's right. for an internship. So yeah. you two, you two have history. We, <laughs> we do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's funny. Okay. So Matt, thank you for joining us today to talk about the history of presidential predictions. So why do you think The Fool, as well as other outlets, love to predict about what's going to happen after so-and-so or whoever gets elected? Well, I, it's great headlines, right? I mean, everybody wants to read it. Everybody wants to know. I think now, especially with the 24-hour media cycle and with social media and with all of the addictive tendencies that comes with that, um, you know, it, it just creates this craving for to know what the next thing is going to be. And, and do you click on those headlines when you see them? Not really. Um, I do so little investing as far as just buying and selling stocks um, that that I don't click on them. But I check my, you know, I check my election forecast, you know, all the time, all the time. fifteen right. times a day. And we should clarify um, what you mean is you don't trade a lot. You're, I don't trade. You're a, a lot. big investor, and you've been an investor from a very young age. I have, you're just not an active trader. I have, yeah, I, I, yeah, I, I have been an investor from a very young age. But yeah. I, last time I bought a stock was eighteen months ago. So yeah. Right, so, what have you seen so far this year as far as predictions for what's going to happen? Should Trump versus Clinton win? Yeah, so I, you know, I think anybody who works here long enough at the Motley Fool, you kind of get an appreciation for the fact that you should never look at a certain event as being this major thing that's going to cause a shakeup in your investing plan. You should always invest for the long term. So, I look at these articles just sort of with kind of a. a um, amused eye, but so um, Kiplinger, for example, and what you see is mixed, right? So Kiplinger, for example, um, they who's actually here in D.C. So for if, if Donald Trump wins, um, one of the companies that they say um, folks should uh, invest in is uh, is Smith and Weston, the gum maker, right? <laughs> and, and the argument there is that you know Trump will come in and um, he will curb gun control laws, and then everybody will be able to get guns Woo! more easily. Guns yeah. for everybody. Buy right. them in bulk at Costco. So on the other side, Quartz Magazine or Quartz.com, um, they had an analyst that came in and uh, was looking at companies you should sell in case Donald Trump wins. And of course, one of the companies they have that you should sell would be Smith and Wesson. Why? Um, because voters would be less nervous about gun laws mm. if Trump won. Well, they've seen that right when there are fears of more laws, people yeah. go out and buy their guns. They stockpile. Yeah. So then they would be. Uh, th- we wouldn't see a continued surge in gun sales. Right. Um, similarly, Kiplinger magazine says uh, if Trump wins, uh, Exxon Mobil would be a good company to own because a, uh, a Trump victory is likely to give the fossil fuel industries in the U.S. a boost. Uh, coal has gotten more play there, but oil is another one. Um, according to Quartz. You should sell oil companies if Trump <laughs> if Trump is elected, uh, because the increase in energy production could actually hurt energy prices. And oh, cost. Right. yeah, sure, too yeah, much, okay. too much supply and demand. Yeah. Um, Kiplinger magazine and uh, actually, so Kiplinger says that if uh, Hillary wins, you should buy uh, Lockheed Martin, uh, the defense company, because Hillary is more hawkish than President Obama, and so the likelihood we're going to need more defense spending is, is going to increase. Uh, Quartz actually says, either way, you should buy defense companies, because <laughs> really? both Trump and Hillary are more hawkish than President Obama. Um, so, yeah, I, I think big picture, it's really hard to, um, you know, it's, it's it's really hard to parse out some of these arguments and, and make sense of them and, and make them into a useful investing thesis. Um, Kiplinger says, 
Um, you know, if, if Hillary wins, Marriott might be a good company uh, to Marriott. own stock in, right? Because um, they employ a lot of undocumented immigrants, and it's just going to make it easier for them to continue what? to employ Who's, them. What? Kipling, Does Marriott know that? Marriott, did you know that you employ so. a lot of undocumented immigrants? <laughs> apparently They're, so. Are they? I don't know about that. Um, Kiplinger says that if Hillary wins, Walmart could be a good company to own because of the tax cuts she's going to give to low and middle income earners. Whereas Kiplinger says if Trump wins, Coach would be a better company to own because uh, top earners are going to get tax cuts. Um, so yeah, you know, either either people are shopping at Walmart or they're going for the expensive Coach handbag. Um, the so pro- the yeah, problem with all that, of course, is the president is one person in one branch of the government, and they generally aren't allowed to just come in and make new rules. So, sure. So, I mean, that's the that's one of the fallacies of thinking any of the things that they promise are just going to happen because they've got to get through. 435 other people who have to agree with them. Not all of them, but the majority of them. Yep. Meaning, of course, the Congress. Hey, what's the thinking about the market in general? The whole big market? Because I've heard, I've, I think I've heard it both ways that the market, stock market goes up for when Democrats are in office, or maybe it's when Republicans are in office. I don't know. Sure. Um, so, our, our old friend Morgan Housel wrote a great story um, a few years back. Where he looked at presidents and stock market returns. Um, so if you look at the top five, um, so top five returns under presidents, right? So uh, three of the top five presidents for the stock markets have been Republicans. Two have been Democrats. Um, if you look at the bottom five, um, four of the bottom five presidents for the stock markets have been Republicans, yeah. and one have been Democrats. Yeah. So it's really a mixed picture either way, and it's hard to you know kind of come up with any discernible pattern. Um, and you know when you study history, like I did, you know one of the things you're always asking is, what is there really a causation thing here, right? So the top five presidents for stock market returns throughout, um, you know, U.S. history: Calvin Coolidge, Gerald Ford, Warren Harding. Those are your Republicans. Um, uh, Barack Obama and Bill Clinton. Those are your Democrats, right? So you look at it, and you know both President Obama and President Clinton either came into office during a recession or right after one, right? Right. So, and um, both of them are leaving office, you know, not in a recession, and so obviously, you know, it makes sense that the stock market returns are going to be pretty good for those guys, right? Um, if you look on the other side. Um, you know, uh, Woodrow Wilson was a Democrat who saw really bad stock market returns. George W. Bush was a Republican that saw really bad stock market returns. Well, Woodrow Wilson was the president during, during World War One, right? Right. Um, and so that's significant. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, George Bush came into office during, uh, you know, right bef- I think during a recession, right, right at the end, kind of at the Clinton years, and then, you know, left office during. The worst recession since the right. Great Depression. He, got, he was bookended by two very yeah. bad economies. So yeah. it's you know to say that to to take those facts and then to say that you know Democrats do better for the market or Republicans do better for the market, I think is really tenuous. Yeah, <laughs> and even it, there are lots of studies about how presidential elections affect the stock market, both in terms of party, both in terms of what if one party has all the levers of government or if it's a divided government. Um, and even if there is a good pattern, it, it doesn't hold up true consistently enough to make you money. So one, for example, is that the worst time for the stock market is the year after election. 
the first two years of a president's term generally are not as good as year three and four. Theory being, as the election gets closer, various parts of the government do whatever it can to juice the economy to make things look good for the next election. So, But if you had followed this advice and said, okay, the first year of a president's term is the worst, I don't want to invest in the stock market, you would have missed the two best years of Obama's terms. Because mm-hmm. in 2009 and 2013 were the best years to be investing in the stock market while Obama was president. Matt, it's time for a history lesson. Uh, you've got a few examples here of some stocks that were supposed to take off after certain people were elected, and sure. then, um, spoiler, it didn't happen. It didn't work out that way. Yeah. Going back to the last three um, elections in which we ushered in a new president, right? So, uh, most recently, President Obama um, in elected first time in 2008. Um, analysts thought that alternative energy companies would do well. Uh, folks thought that the Obama administration would be bad for stocks. Um, so, since Obama's been president, I, I think I looked at it around February 1st of the year he was inaugurated through yesterday. Um, the uh, iShares Clean Energy ETF has gone from $15.23 a share to $8.89. So, that went That's down. That's the wrong direction. Chevron, meanwhile, um, has gone from $60.71 up to $105.29. And Bank of America, of course, um, has gone from about four dollars a share to about sixteen and two thirds. So the Obama administration not terrible for Bank of America. Right. Um, going back to two thousand, uh, when George Bush, uh, George W. Bush, was elected, um, there was a belief that um, his term would be beneficial for bank stocks and for uh, drug companies. And actually, so the two companies I looked at here are two com. Two of the first stocks that I ever bought. Oh, uh, yeah, J.P. Morgan Chase. Um, and as an aside, when I bought this, I called my broker and said I'd like to buy J.P. Morgan, and he said, "Well, it's J.P. Morgan Chase." And looking back on it, thank you for adding so much value at that point, <laughs> right? Um, How old were you? I was in college. I think. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. So it, during the, <laughs> during the Bush presidency, J.P. Morgan Chase. Um, dropped actually from 46 and two thirds down to 31.53, um, and then the second company I owned shares of at the time was Pfizer, uh, and Pfizer dropped from 45 dollars a share to 17.71. Um, and again, that was during uh, an administration that we thought uh, would be beneficial to banks and to uh, drug companies. And then finally, during the 1992 election, uh, when Bill Clinton um, became president. Um, you know, there was the belief that he was going to remake the healthcare system at that time, um, and so um, you know, the the thought was that drug companies would get hurt there. Um, instead, uh, Pfizer, the aforementioned Pfizer, increased almost eight hundred percent in value in, Cl- in Clinton's presidency. Merck jumped three hundred percent, and Johnson Johnson uh, jumped three hundred and eighty five percent. So those Jeez. are um, those are three instances where you know the predict the. Uh, Prognosticators got it wrong. It's difficult because as investor, investing is in of itself a prediction, right? You're buying a stock because you're making a prediction that it's going to be worth more. Oh, sure. But history just shows it's a very difficult game, and you just hope that people who made these brave prognostications had more investments in their portfolio other than these stocks. I hope, for example, you had something other than Pfizer and J.P. Morgan in your portfolio, Matt. 
Um, I think I did. Yeah, my family, my family had invested stuff for me, but these those were two of the first that I that I had picked. So. Right. Um, yeah, I, I think it just goes to show you know the uh, difficulty with um, taking one event, whatever it is, and and trying to boil it down and saying it's going to be good for one particular type of stock, and then you and then investing in that. Right. Um, I mean. You're committing a whole, you know, host of sins, investing sins by doing that. Yeah, I will say uh, I'll tell you a funny story of um, someone I talked to because you know you work at the Motley Fool and everyone always wants to talk yeah. investing in you. And someone I talked to recently, maybe it was a year ago, said, "Hey, what do you think about medical marijuana stocks? I mean, I really <laughs> think they're going to go up." And I'm like, "Man, I don't know. I haven't given it any thought." But yeah, you see that, right? Yeah. All right, bro, why don't you bring us home with a little straight talk about bottoms-up long-term investing. <laughs> Man. I don't get sick of it. Play it again, bro. Like, well, uh, for, you have to remember that the price of the overall market, or any individual stock, is basically determined by the collective decision of millions of investors from all over the world. And you're not going to be able to predict exactly what they're going to do. And whoever becomes the next president they're not going to be able to do everything that they say they're going to do. There are things that are going to happen over the next four years that they even that we don't expect are going to happen. If you look at history, you look at what defines certain presidencies, often they are events that nobody anticipated. So trying to buy or sell, especially big buy and sell decisions related to your portfolio based on who's going to be the next president. It's just not going to probably work out very well for you. Well, I imagine ideally also here at the Fool, we preach that you're going to be holding stocks Hopefully, through a whole term or two of you. Mm-hmm. I mean, we talk only holding stocks three, five, ten, hopefully forever years, which means you got a lot of ups and downs that you can overcome and smooth mm-hmm. out. And also, you hopefully want to be investing in companies that can weather any administration, right? Yeah. I mean, our standard line is any money you need in the next three and maybe even five years if you're retired should not be in the stock market. So that means. If there's any money that is going to be dependent on who becomes president for the next four years, that probably should just be in a safer place. Yeah, I agree. I think it's dangerous to look back and say, well, this president was in office at this time, and this is what the stock market did, and try to, um, you know, try to make a prediction on that. So, you know, I hope that I know that's an easy mistake to make, but I hope people can fight the urge to do that. Oh, I'm sure we'll never make that mistake again, especially after <laughs> listening to this podcast episode. <laughs> We've all learned our lesson, right? We've nothing to fear about whoever wins the election tonight. It'll all work out. It will. We're it all going to be fine. Yeah. But we're still all exhausted. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Gracious. Matt, thank you for joining us. Thank Please you for Please come back me. again and bring I'd some more history to. with you. Anytime. Woof! What an election! You look like you could use a vacation. Some place where, no matter who you voted for, you can get a hug from a giant mouse. Everybody, we're going to Disney World! And to help us, we're giving you the insider scoop. Two faithful fans of the podcast, who are actually Disney World cast members, have given us their best tips for making the most from a trip to Disney World. Uh, they have asked to remain anonymous, but they know who they are. We also have joining us in studio Anne Henry. She works in video production here at The Fool and is a resident Disney World expert. Hi, Anne. Hey, how's it going? Good. Thank you for joining us. Now, how many times have you been to Disney World? Uh, I would say more than 10, less than 100. Uh, but closer to 10. <laughs> wow. Uh, you are actually 
after we finish taping this, going again in like a couple days, right? I am. I leave uh, for right. my sixth trip this year. Jeez. <laughs> so, yeah, so you can see why I asked you to, yes. to come in and help us with this. All right. So, like I said, we had some listeners who actually work at Disney World, and they were kind enough to give me some of their insider advice. And we're going to combine that with your insider advice to help people plan the best Disney World trip ever, because I think we could all use a little break, don't you? Yeah, let's do it. All right. So, the first piece of insider advice is that timing is everything. They wrote, plan your trip between late October and early March because the weather is less, shall we say, Floridian. Yes. The crowds are smaller, the prices are cheaper, and they have tons of seasonal fun events. That's right. Yeah. No, I totally am on board with that. Um, When you think about when you want to plan your Disney trip, you want to think, when are kids out of school. So during the summer, they're out of school. At Christmas time, they're out of school. Uh, Week of Thanksgiving, they're out of school. If you can avoid those days um, going to Disney, 100% do it. Also during the summer, it gets very hot. Um, It can be up over 100. Plus, there's those afternoon thunder showers that you're going to get. So it's really not an ideal time to go if you can avoid it. They also mentioned that there's all these sort of seasonal events that you maybe don't Like, I didn't know about this. Yeah, there's tons of seasonal events. There's ones that are free that come um, up a couple times a year. There's the Flower and Garden Festival, which is in April, May time. They have topiaries and stuff in Epcot. Um, There's also the Food and Wine Festival, which is great for the adult crowd. Um, But there's also some paid events. There's Mickey's Not-So-Scary Halloween Party. There's Mickey's Very Merry Christmas Party. There's Run Disney events. There's stuff going on all year for whatever interest you have. Um, If you just look at their calendar, you can go down for any of those things. I totally want to do the Star Wars is it half marathon or marathon? They do a half marathon. There's actually one at both parks. We're we're specifically talking about Disney World, um, but Disneyland has um, a Star Wars weekend as well as uh, Walt Disney World. I totally want to do that. All right, next piece of advice: you have many accommodation options, but seriously, stay on the resort. It's worth it. Yes, um, I I would agree with that. Um, if you have a big family and um, you kind of want to stay like in a like condo, maybe staying off property. Makes oh, we're going to make your own meals. And yeah. Big, yeah, but if you're going to stay on property, um, it really like the dollar values there. You can stay at a value resort if you want to save some money. They offer round trip transportation to and from not only the um, the parks but also from the airport. If you're flying into Orlando, they'll pick you up and drop you off. They also drop off your bags, which is really awesome. You don't even have to pick them up from the turnstile. They will pick up your bags and deliver them to your room for you. Oh wow! Um, and they also have extra magic hours, which is um, either an early park opening or a late park closing. They do one or two per day where people staying on property can enjoy the parks for longer. Our insiders also mentioned that you should try to bundle it and use Disney's site when you're booking your reservations. Do you always use Disney's website? Do you book it through Disney or do you use other sources too? Um, so There's actually a lot of really good resources, but booking you have to go through Disney's website. Third piece of advice, make the most of your visit by planning ahead and taking advantage of technology. Now, we're going to talk about FastPass, the My Disney Experience app. Can you explain those to me? Yes. Well, let's talk about what to do. Plan your trip as far in advance as possible. Um, 180 days is preferred. Um, That's when those dining reservations, those um, backstage tours, those experience things. That's bananas. Those things fill up 180, like... The really popular ones fill up way in advance, right at the 180-day oh, mark. Wow. Okay. If you want your, your kid to go to Bibbidi Bobbidi Boutique and get the princess makeover, book that at 180 days in advance. If you want to dine with the Beast at Be Our Guest or with the princesses at Cinderella's Royal Table, book those things 180 days in advance. Everything else is a little bit more fluid, but if you want those really hardcore things, you need to book 
really early. <laughs> hardcore. Hardcore Hard, Disney. Yeah. yeah, I'm hardcore Disney, so I plan things like <laughs> years in advance. Um, fast passes are... Um, the best way to describe them is kind of like a cut the line pass. They come with every ticket, and you get three fast passes per day to book. And so it gives you a time to show up at the ride and, and wait in a shorter line. So you want to book those as far in advance for the popular attractions. If you're staying on property, it's 60 days in advance. If you're staying off property, it's 30 days in advance. You can book those times that you want to um, go to those popular attractions. You can really save a lot of time. The, the big attractions like Seven Dwarfs Mine Train, those waits can be upwards of two hours or longer. Wow. And if you have a fast pass, you might wait 30 minutes, sometimes less. So you can save a lot of time by um, really planning your day in advance. And to do that, we have the My Disney Experience app. Yes, we do. The My Disney Experience app is on the computer and on your phone. And um, it's actually really great to have in the park. It tells you wait times for rides. So you can kind of check throughout the day. Um, it you can book dining on there. Um, you can look at your photos from the PhotoPass experience. Um, it really is an a exclusive tool for them that really makes it easy for you to plan your trip day to day and in advance. So this last piece of advice that came to us from our insiders working at Disney was to ask the cast members. Now this is, a cast member is the name for anyone who works on the resort, right? Or within the parks. Yeah, that's everybody. That's the person who's selling you your ticket. That's the person at the ride. That's um, that's Mickey Mouse. That's everybody. Anyone who works for Walt Disney is considered a cast member. And I found this great quote from Walt Disney. He says, um, you can design and create and build the most wonderful place on earth, but it takes people to make the dream a reality. And really, like Disney embraces that that wholeheartedly. If you're If you're talking to somebody at um, the front desk. Know that that like you're not getting rich working at the front desk at Disney. You're not you're not rolling in the dough if you're a ride operator at Expedition Everest. Those people love the Walt Disney Company, and they know a lot of information, a lot of tips, a lot of tricks. So talk to everybody that you can, because even if you don't get a great um, tip or a great um, idea for something to do, you're still going to learn something great either about Walt Disney or the Walt Disney brand. Yeah, our insiders told us when you, as soon as you check in, go talk to your front desk person and be like, what's the cool thing to do around here? What do you like to do around here? Yeah, I couldn't but, agree more. Yeah. See, that's so nice. People. It's people. People okay. make the dream work. They do make the dream work. Where should people go to learn more? Um, any websites or other resources you want to send people to? There are a plethora. There are a lot. Uh, I discovered this when I was researching Disney, too. I was like, how do I tell the good ones from the not good ones? There are so many. There's Facebook pages. There's blogs. There's uh, websites. There's all sorts of stuff. Um, obviously, the main place you can go is DisneyWorld.Disney.Go.com. Um, <laughs> that's their website where you can uh, really book everything. If you're looking for ways to save money on your trip, I'd recommend MouseSavers.com. Um, it's a great resource um, of ways kind of to um, cut the edges off. You know, Disney can seem really expensive. And they can um, really walk you through steps on how to make it seem more affordable. Um, there's UndercoverTourist.com. They're a third-party retailer of discounted Disney tickets, um, and they also have a crowd calendar, so you can, you know, kind of pick your days and look and see how crowded it's going to be. I think they put out their crowd calendars between six six months and a year in advance, so you can kind of look really far out. Um, and then I would recommend um, AllEars.net for literally everything else. That that website. It's just like an explosion of information. <laughs> if if you need to know literally anything, go to that website. All right, awesome. Thank you, Anne. This has been wonderful getting your inside advice. And I want to thank our listeners who work at Disney and gave us their advice as well. Thank you to them for giving me the inside tips and also making the dream a reality. They really are the ones who make it work.
All right, that's the show. Thanks to Kirby Myers, who is stationed out in Fallon, Nevada, for sending over a Top Gun-inspired postcard. Boom, Ooh, Matt, look at that. That's awesome. He also sent over some challenge coins, which uh, Rick like gasped and said, that's so cool! And then he educated me about what they are. They're pretty cool. They are really They're cool. They're really cool. So, uh, thanks, you guys, for still sending in the postcards. I really appreciate it. Our email is answers at fool.com. Uh, hey, if you're on Facebook, speaking of social media where you post all of your embarrassing videos, <laughs> head on over and join our Facebook group. It's a Motley Fool podcast. Just search for it and ask to be let in, and we will let you in because it's a private group. And thanks to Anne for joining us and sharing her insider information, as well as our two secret Disney World cast members who asked not to be named. Uh, We appreciate the inside scoop on travel to Disney World. All right. The show is edited presidentially by Rick Engdahl. Why not? For Robert Brokamp and Matt Trogdon, I'm Allison Southwick. Stay foolish, everybody.